The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Thank you, guys. Um, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Jacob. I get the privilege of being the lead pastor here. Um, we are doing the Psalms through the summer, and we are close to finishing up our section in the Psalms. Um, if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be in Psalm 63 this morning. If you don't, we have plenty out front. We'd love for you to take those. Um, we're going to be doing something a little bit different this morning, um, and I'm going to get into that for uh, in a second, um, but just to give you a sense of where we are in terms of what we're preaching through this year. Uh, we've been doing the Psalms um, in the summer because, uh, as you might be able to tell, uh, people are gone on vacation and stuff like that, and we just kind of plod through a section of the Psalms, and then starting in September, we're going to be working through a big series on the overview of the Bible called All Things New. Uh, that series is designed around wa- uh, walking through the big storyline of the Bible um, from Genesis. We're going to spend a lot of time in Genesis, uh, but we're going to go through towards the end of the Bible and try to understand how has God made us. How is he renewing us to feel spiritual renewal, to experience newness of life in him? Because um, we're just kind of viewing like COVID and all of that stuff as like a collective trauma experience that we need help recovering from. And so we're going through that series. We're going to pick chapters as we go along to understand how God made us, what the fall and sin does to us. um, And you can kind of throw COVID in there. And then the hope that Jesus provides for us in the gospel and who he is of what it means to experience new life in him. So that's starting in a couple weeks. We're finishing up the Psalms right now. We are in Psalm 63. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for us. um, And then we're going to start looking at this. And then I will explain how things are going to look a little different for a sermon for this morning um, uh, than what we would normally do. But Psalm 63. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this psalm that captures so so clearly the desires of our heart for you, I pray that you would help us to want to want to be with you. Help us, even as those of us this morning struggle to to muster up the faith to know you, to experience you, would you just give us an inkling of wanting to want to be with you and help our souls to be postured towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, This is, I'm not sure if you've ever been around church or uh, the Bible very much, but this is certainly one of those kind of very famous psalms. It is probably one of the most well-known psalms, um, and for a portion of my life, there have been times where I go into, um, I will read this psalm every morning of the uh, of my week. I will, there's a section of psalms I'll kind of cobble together, and there's like three or four of them, and no matter what my Bible reading plan is, or if I have a Bible reading plan at all, I will read this psalm because I think this psalm captures a great deal of what we want out of our Christianity. Why do we want to be Christians in the first place? I think this psalm captures a great deal of what's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. You see it here in verses 1 to 3. 
Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Here's the payoff. Because your steadfast love is better than life. We want a Christianity that experiences God himself. That's what this psalm captures. Right? We, we, we can write moral programs to figure out how to get our lives back in order. We can write moral programs, how to get your finances in order and all that stuff. And we can kind of set up rules and regulations for how to make sure that we all kind of like fit a cookie cutter image or whatever. But at the end of the day, what Christianity offers us and what I think God wants for us most importantly is that we experience him. That's the payoff of this psalm. That's what true Christianity is all about. This psalm captures that heartbeat of what we all come to Christianity for. Right? We, we, some of us might come to Christianity because we want to get out of hell. <laughs> like, that's okay, that's a good idea. The hell's not a great place to be. Jesus is a better place to be. But we want Jesus for him, not a fire ticket out of hell. <laughs> we want to know Jesus. We want God himself because he is so good that the psalm says, your steadfast love is better than life itself. There is something here in the psalm that offers us this experience of what God is like. This is what a healthy soul feels like. This is what it means to be healthy on the inside. This is uh, that the Lord himself is the life of a healthy soul. So we have been talking about in the last few weeks this whole idea of solitude and silence with God. We've been talking about it through various you know, applications of psalms and all that stuff. What this psalm offers us, whatever you want to call it, solitude, silence, quiet times, you know, whatever you want to call it, this psalm offers us the opportunity to be able to kind of dig in a little bit more deeply on this idea of being with God himself and enjoying God for who he is. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this psalm briefly. We're going to kind of spend 10 minutes kind of doing a normal sermon look at this psalm. And then Peter and I are going to have, uh, we're going to lead a conversation, kind of Q&A style, of what it means to live in this reality, to live out this posture of a soul depending on God. So uh, if you notice, we, we have, I sent an email this last week to get questions. If you responded to that, we got those. If you have a question on the spot, you can text those uh, to the Q&A number. That will come straight to my phone because what we want to do is really as a community Learn to be disciples who have our souls postured to find life in the Lord. So here's what we're going to do. The main point and then the outline. Um, we're just going to kind of dive right through this. The main point of this psalm, I think, is cultivate a posture of finding life in the Lord. Cultivate a posture of your soul. Cultivate a posture of your heart towards God so that you find life in him. That's what this psalm is aiming at, and we're going to, find, we're going to see that. And we're going to, the third point really is just kind of like, uh, because I get paid the big bucks to write sermons, <laughs> and I, uh, I needed to find a way to kind of close this off. <laughs> but we're really just going to look at the first eight verses here. Um, so in cultivating a posture of finding life in the Lord, first we want to look at it, verses one to four, our desire for life itself. It's, this jumps off the page, but just so you recognize it, this is a, written by a guy who's in the middle of the desert, who, if you've ever seen a movie, ever, with anybody ever in the desert, they are yearning for water, right? The latest John Wick ends up, spoiler alert, he ends up in the desert, finds an oasis, but he is yearning for water. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. This is not like a, this is not a phrase. It's like, you know, I've had one drink. Let me have another. <laughs> this is, I've been at the beach all day. All of that salty water will kill me. I left my water at home. My car is an hour away. I am dying. Somebody please get me some water. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. This is the desperation of a soul yearning for God. This is the posture and reality of the human life. We are all trying in one way or another 
to satisfy our inner craving for life. This is, I mean, we meet in a recovery center, guys. You're here because you're either, you've found out that drugs and alcohol do not satisfy those inner yearnings and cravings, or you're here on Sunday morning because you're hoping that Jesus will. You can work at any of the buildings downtown. You can work at CVS or Walgreens, sorry, the same idea, next door, yearning for money and status and prestige and power to satisfy your yearning. You can give 50 years of your life to a career that will never get you to the period at the end of this song. Because none of those things will satisfy you. They will continually lead you into one desert or another. But the Lord himself offers him himself to you to give you life. And that's what we find in verse 2 because David in the psalm is not finding God wherever God wherever he wants to find God. He's not just kind of going out in the woods or he's not going anywhere to find wherever whatever God means to him. God has revealed himself to be a certain type of God. And David responds by seeing, verse 2, I will look upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. See, God himself says, I know you've been made for life. I made you that way. And so he steps into the picture through, again, we're going to go look at this in the, in the next series, the whole Old Testament system of the temple and the sanctuary and the sacrificial system. But he's covering all that and saying, God has provided a way for me to be with him. And it deals with all of the death and decay and sin and weakness in me by God meeting it with his compassion and grace and mercy. That's the type of God that he meets, not some God that he can kind of think up on his own, but he meets the Lord himself. And what does the Lord reveal? Verse 2, verse two I will behold in your sanctuary your power to overcome sin and death and your glory to be the type of God who does it over and over and over and over again continually to give us new life, right? And remember, this is in the Old Testament where David is hoping towards the culmination of these things. We look back on this from the New Testament and recognize this was finally satisfied in Jesus himself, where Jesus displays the power of God through his broken body on a cross to save us from the power of Satan, sin, and death, and his glory to rise over Satan's sin and death through his resurrection that then give us new life. And we're going to keep moving forward. But here we have verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I think what's going on for David, frankly, just like any one of us, his life and his experience of the quality of life goes up and down, right? How many of us get up on Monday, we're like, yay! And by Wednesday, we're like, no! whatever your experience of life is, and maybe that's hour to hour, and maybe there's mental health struggles in there, and maybe there's there's job struggles, and maybe there's all these other things that go into the picture, but our lives are all like this. God is himself, an ever-flowing, unending, always and forever fountain of love and life and joy. That is who he is, unending satisfaction. God does not have good days and bad days. <laughs> God has unending days of being God himself, which is happiness and joy in life. I think that type of life is better, even on my good days. The bills all get paid. My kids praise me and love me. (laughs) My friends text me. (laughs) Whatever your satisfaction in life is, even on my best days, even at the end of the Red Sox winning the World Series, (laughs) God is still better than that because the Red Sox will then trade away Jackie Bradley Jr. for a horrible lineup. God does not. So, verse 6 to 8. We've looked at our desire for life, verse 6 to 8, God's feast for life. I want to, I want to draw in here on verse 5 because I think this gets us into the exact idea of what we're talking about. The English Standard Version has this, my soul will be satisfied. I think a from other translations, again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. What do I know? But the framing here is basically saying, my soul is feasted as with fat and rich food. Now, 
we read this uh, from contemporary eyes and we think, aren't you supposed to like not eat fat? <laughs> you know, we look at it from like, you got protein, carbs, and um, fats, and then you've got sugars and all that other stuff. And we think about it from a modern diet perspective. You have to understand two things when, you, when David writes this psalm. Up until the 20th century, the entire global population of the world lived hand-to-mouth, paycheck-to-paycheck, meal-to-meal, every day of their lives, forever, right? Even if you were a farmer, you farmed for like four months so that hopefully you got a crop that then you would store and sell and then barter and trade, and then hopefully that lasted you through the next time so you could eat your last potato right when the next ones were coming out of the ground, right? It was not an easy sustenance, and the, the rich, 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 top, top, top people, that's why it talks about in the Bible how they would store up all this food for themselves and then occasionally give it out to other people because the upper echelon of, this, of human society, like, I'm not talking like the 1%. I'm talking like the Jeff Bezos of the world back in the ancient world, like the point zero 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 one percent had food to spare. Everybody else were living hand to mouth. So that's one thing. When he says this, my soul will be satisfied as with rich food. You're like, bro, you've got food to go around forever. And you've not, not just like the kind of like scraggly McDonald's food. Like you've got like for real, like legit Ruth Chris food. Second thing to keep in mind here is when he says fat food. Um, again, <laughs> we're just rolling with all the kid dynamics, guys. Um, has anybody ever seen the show Alone? I know, I know Mike's a big fan of the show. Does anybody, you guys know the show Alone? Okay, History Channel. Main idea, correct me if I'm wrong. Main idea, you take these like hyper survivalist people, you drop them out in like the middle of nowhere. Here's your Bowie knife and like a twig and like some string. <laughs> we'll see you in a couple months and they have to survive, right? I mean, that's basically the idea, right? So they have to survive out there. They, um, most people get to around 67 days on their own. Um, they did a challenge uh, in recent years called uh, around getting to 100 days. And the survivalists that got to 100 days, the one dynamic that helped them get to that 100 days space was that they learned how to cultivate and store fat from the food of the land, the animals that they killed and all that stuff. Because here's the thing. If you've ever gone hunting or you eat game food, like game food like deer and elk and all that stuff, is really lean, and there's not a lot of fat in it. Like, if you live off rabbits for a couple months, you're going to die from starvation because your body's going to lose all of these inner nutrients. What's going on, the reason I mention all that here, what's going on here is that dietary fat is critical to sustaining life, right? Dietary fat must be a part of our experience of any general nutrition so that we survive just from one day to the next. Back to the point here. I know we're kind of going like, I was about to go on like a nutrition thing. You know, you guys know that I like to geek out about that stuff. But verse five, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. That verse reads a little different now, doesn't it? The Lord himself is telling us, I'm not just food for your soul to get by. I'm not just food for your soul to kind of like eke by and get by from one paycheck to the one paycheck. I'm not even hand-to-mouth feeding. I will satisfy you as with the deepest nutrients of what you were made for. The Lord himself, God's life, satisfies us with unending, rich, life-sustaining food because we were made for him. So you have verses 1 to 4 saying, God, I'm yearning for you. And then you have verse 5 to 8 saying, God saying, I'm satisfying you. You were made for me, and I designed you so that I will be for you eternal life. So we have here verse 6 to 8, and we'll kind of close up with this stuff. When I remember you upon the watches of my bed, upon my bed, and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Here we have David saying, I looked at you in the sanctuary, and I saw what type of God you are. And then as I'm meditating you on you or my life or whatever, 11.32 at night, alone when I'm trying to go to sleep, 3 o'clock in the morning when I'm suddenly woken up and I can't seem to sleep, any of these sort of moments where he's alone, where does his mind go? Okay, God, your life is better than my life. 
you you have made me to be satisfied with you. So whatever's going on, he's going to talk about that here in verse 9 to 11. I know, here's the main point. You have made me for you, and you have promised to satisfy me with you. That is what we find here. Verse 8, my soul clings to you as with your right hand upholds me. I don't know, the image that comes to mind, I don't have any other reason, just my own life experience. The image that comes to mind is a newborn baby. A newborn baby clings to you like it's freaking going to like fall off a cliff, right? Like it's just going to fall off. But you know any good mother or father is holding on to that child with absolute tenderness and joy. But it's holding on like, don't let me go. That's the image here. I must have you, God. I must have you. I must be satisfied with who you are. And yet here the Lord is, I've got you. You're close to me. There's no way that anybody can rip you out of my arms. And then we'll finish up here with looking at verse 9 to 11. Our confidence for life. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. These are all Old Testament imagery to basically say, God's going to judge them. God's going to take care of them. The most important thing here is I have confidence that the Lord's going to take care of this. I don't need to worry about that stuff. My main focus, I don't need to Facebook post those guys into oblivion, responding to all their stuff. My main focus in life is, God, I need you. And you have promised to satisfy me with you. So, I think what this psalm does is it leads us to saying we need to cultivate a posture to find life in the Lord. So what we want to do now is we want to kind of pivot and we're going to turn to a conversation Peter and I want to lead on how do we do that? How do we, so we've laid out, here's the big picture of what we want. We want God himself. So then what does it look like to cultivate a life that enjoys God himself, a posture of soul? So we, uh, Peter and I got together this week uh, to think through questions of what that would look like to lead that, this type of conversation. And we sent an email out asking for questions. Some, we got several questions from folks. So we're going to incorporate those into our conversation. I think one of the first questions we've got, Peter, that I think would be helpful to kind of lead us into this, uh, where does the idea or vocabulary of solitude with God come from? Like, is this a biblical one? Is this a historical one? Where is this idea coming from? Yeah, I think uh, I want to say first, I'm really appreciative of Jacob's uh, pastoral sensitivity to this dynamic and recognizing the need to, not just the need, but maybe the willingness to switch up the format a little bit. Because I do find myself like, I don't know if I'm going to like blow the whole operation here, but listening to sermons about things can sometimes become like, okay, I, you have buy-in. What do I do now? Uh, so, so something like this where it's a little bit more interactive is, is pastorally sensitive, and I appreciate that. And then the, the nature of the questions that we got were, I think, people tracking in, yeah. in some of the same ways. So I really appreciated the thoughtfulness of the questions that we got. So speaking to the biblical part of it, uh, I think my short answer would be you see a lot of this language of quietness. Uh, it's in the prophets. You see it in Isaiah, Isaiah 26, Isaiah 30. Uh, if you even go back into like Joshua, where the Israelites are entering into the land, there is this idea, if not the word, that they need to posture themselves in a quiet way before the Lord. And what that means is it's just the absence of internal striving. That's what it is, that you're going to wait in confidence for what God is doing. Uh, so Isaiah would include the same sort of thing, where he would say, in quietness, in repentance is your strength. Not in striving, not in identifying yourself in some way. Solitude is a little bit different in my mind. That's kind of like the practical outworking of it. And I think there's no better example of it than Jesus in Luke's gospel, that you see on a pretty consistent basis that Jesus is withdrawing to lonely places to pray, I think is the phrase that gets used quite a bit. Um, so in terms of, I don't know that there's like a full-blown monastic handbook in uh, the Bible, but those are sort of the indicators that I see that it is a posture of non-striving before the Lord, and then solitude is just practically how that works itself out, that Jesus 
he actually has to withdraw to desolate places, that the demands of ministry are such that that it's not something that you can necessarily do with lots of people around. So, yeah. And the second part of the question we got, and that is actually some of the things that we were talking about in preparation for this, is um, how has this come to be something of importance to you lately? Like, why is this... Is this just something that we just kind of happen to be in in the Psalms, or is this something that it's in a, it's on the forefront of your mind? Like, why is this a, an important category for... I, I can answer, but I'll let you go first. Yeah, why don't you you go first? Oh, I talk. No, you go first. <laughs> um, I think for me, I think that some of it is just my own life dynamics. <laughs> um, we have a very, uh, very busy house. Um, and it's not that we're doing a lot of stuff. It's just that we have a lot of... Um, uh, individuals that will eventually be taxpayers um, in our house, and they are as of yet not. Um, <laughs> no, we just we uh, we just have a lot going on, um, and there's just a lot. Uh, I think for me, I'm recognizing like it's funny. I, do you guys get those reports on how much fun you use your phone? Yeah, I, I don't know why, but they're time to go off at like 9:20 in the morning on Sundays, which I think is like Apple's way of like getting at all the church people, you know, like, ah, you're going to church, just recognize that, you know. So like my report for this week was like on an average day, I spend about four hours on my phone. And now I'm not saying that's a healthy example, but it is reality of what I, of what my week looks like as well. It's like, not do I have a lot going on with my family, but I just have a lot of stimulation <clears throat> and a lot of that stuff that I've invited into my life. Like it's not like I can certainly live without my phone, but and some of that's work stuff and all that stuff, whatever, but I just feel very like involved and engaged and stimulated and there's just a lot of things going on right now. And so as I think about <clears throat> what does it mean to be healthy, I'm recognizing that I myself need to be drawing away from this. So I need to be figuring out a way to get this thing off and away from me on a more regular basis. Um, and then how to do that for our family and our my wife and all that stuff. So that's kind of where I'm coming from of just why it's perpetually, because it's a part of, I, I feel I need to be healthier spiritually. That is going to involve having to then begin to create some space between me and these things. So, Yeah, for me it was, um, we went on a long trip this summer and part of the experience for me was not being in Manchester, to be completely honest, to be in completely different places and it was sort of inside, I would say, it was sort of like a retreat time, except it was 8,500 miles in a minivan, with, which was great. Like, I mean, I don't know if my kids thought the minivan was the best part of it. So it wasn't like mountaintop experiences. I just used it as an opportunity to reset. The last, you know, year and a half, especially of remote learning, has really dissolved boundaries in terms of people's access to me. Um, and those boundaries were always porous before, and they became non-existent in terms of, of preventing uh, access to, like answering emails at times, like during remote learning especially, where I shouldn't have been answering those emails. So I found I, I needed to kind of reset some of it was actually, it's a couple exercises that I went through that I'll invite you into as well. It was basically like, what is your desire right now? Like, what is your deep longing? And for me, this idea of, of quietness and of calm really rose to the fore. And I apparently had a lot to say about that. Like, when, whenever you strike on the right thing, it's like pages and pages of journaling where, where the ideas just kind of flow. So for me, it was just more of a, I need to regain some some boundaries. I need to set those boundaries around access to me just to get into healthier rhythms of like my own personal life, my professional life, ministry related stuff like um so those those sorts of things were where it kind of rose to the fore for me. Um so as we want to kind of turn towards some of what we're talking about like the practicing or the hope of what solitude and silence does, what are some of the hindrances that that um, we face in the pursuit of solitude with God. Sorry, say that again. What are some hindrances that we face in the pursuit of solitude with God? Because <laughs> what we want to do is talk about what do we hope to experience there, yeah, but yeah. I think kind of clearing some of the brush away of what are the hindrances that we... Yeah, at least for me, part of the experience is like when I start scrolling, it's like, it's awful. And I consider myself to be a pretty quiet 
person not really prone to necessarily <laughs> utilizing those things too much, but it's there's just so much visual noise and so much auditory noise and so much even marketing that comes down to like distracting you. So the idea to sit in solitude, like, boy, good luck. I, I mean, so, so for me, it's just sort of that, you know, sort of defaulting to distraction. Yeah. And I think this maybe speaks to a previous question that we got on uh, the, the previous question about why is this important to you is, um, my, my kind of like discipleship training up until this, up in the last few years has been, um, within that category of like gospel centered stuff, there is kind of like this vein of, uh, discipleship where, uh, the mode of, of experiencing God is saying, I need to realize how horrible a person I am. And the more horrible a person I am that I realize, um, then I go to God and experience how good God's been to me, but realize also I can't be a great person or I can't grow or change, so I need to experience then again how horrible a person I am, and then I go to God and experience it, who He is and provide it for me. So there's like this vicious kind of sinister cycle of the only thing of my discipleship is to see how much of a sinner I am, and the only thing of God's posture towards me is a forgiving God towards me. And so... That's a very narrow and thin experience of discipleship. And there's certainly true dynamics to that, right? Like, I am a sinner. I do need the forgiveness. But that's not the sum total of my experience in life with God. My experience of life with God is that He actually wants me to be a part of His family. He wants to be uh, satisfying to me. He wants me to experience His goodness. He's designed and created me to be the unique person that I am. And so it is in the these other kind of various practices of solitude and silence that offer me a new way of experiencing the spiritual life and formation of what it means to be with God. And so that's one of those hindrances that I've had to kind of work through of kind of like, what do you mean spending time with God because he wants to be with me? Like, what does that mean? You know, like that, that's just been, that been an invitation to a new discipleship for me. Um, yeah, and I think what's interesting, I think, to piggyback on that is the difference between, like, branches of Christian spiritual formation that start with desire and not guilt. Like, I, I feel like you're in a much better place, and I, I'll say experientially, like, I feel a lot of resolve to maintain these disciplines because they're coming out of a place of desire yeah. versus, like, shoulds and oughts, like, those are not going to be fuel that can, I mean, I guess just look at the Israelites, like, you, you just watched the Exodus, and then, like, 10 minutes later, you're, <laughs> like, yeah. like, there's, there's a fearful element, but I don't think that fear or guilt or shame are going to be thing, fuel that can sustain the yeah. practices, so we could sit around and make each other feel bad about our lack of habits in this area, it, <laughs> It won't matter. Yeah. Like it's it. It's it won't change. add up to anything, because um, eventually you're going to say like, "Boy, this is really hard." And if you're not starting from a place of desire, I think that it's it gets a, a little bit tricky. So let's take that and then just kind of turn towards what is uh, what is a a life of uh, being postured towards God in solitude? What does that offer us? Like, why do we want that? Um. So one of the questions we got, um, maybe this is kind of going to what you're talking about. What are some of the guideposts for practicing silence and solitude without letting the inner critic and unhealthy self-talk interfere with the process? Yes, and I love the the language of the inner critic because as soon as I read it, I'm like, yep, that's the thing. Uh, so here's the master's class on that. Uh, and not how to avoid it at all because I... So there are... Um, Actually, very specific traditions around silence and solitude. And I'll just give you one, which I think is fairly simple. Um, yeah. Some of the language you'll see is around something called like a prayer word. And define irony, distractions. And yeah. the, um, so, so what this is, is a period of silence. Like, call it what you want, 10, 15 minutes. We can talk about the particulars of that. 
But what I find compelling is this idea of a word or a phrase. It could be an image for God. There's a number of things that it could be, but something that really centers you and grounds you in the midst of that. Because I think that the inner critic, the distraction, the voice is inevitable. Like that is going to happen, period. Like I don't think there's any way to avoid it. And in the same way that we discipline ourselves in other ways, Something like a prayer word, like for me, Psalm 131 is like the, the centering text of my life, uh, that that's one that I'm always drawn back to, but it doesn't have to be that. Like lots of traditions are built around the Jesus prayer, the Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. Like just something like that, that you repeat to draw yourself back to attention. One of the things I also find interesting in that vein is... Uh, it takes Jesus' encounter of t- the temptation with the enemy in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4 as well. Jesus' response to the enemy is not like reasoning or arguing or rationalizing. It's just straight scripture. Like there's no exposition. There's no four-point sermons or three-point sermons or whatever. And I find that framework to be really compelling. So I guess... I would say that when the inner critic, when that happens, I'm not rational. I'm putting it in a box and I'm repeating this thing that is true. And in the discipline of doing that as a one-off, it's, it's not going to be the most effective thing in the world. But over time, that's, that's the intention. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but I do like that reading of Jesus' temptation where you're not, I'm not processing this right now. I'm not, I don't even agree to the premise. I'm not dealing with this. I'm right back to, for me, it's Psalm 131. I have calmed and quieted my soul. Um, I'm not going to process whatever that distraction is. Doesn't mean it's not important. Doesn't mean it's not coming back. But, but that's part of the discipline. So I think for me, if I was going to just suggest one thing, it would be like, what's a word or a phrase or an image of God or something that you just really connect with? It just like strikes you right at the core and then have that be central to these times of solitude. Yeah, I think what Peter helped me, you framing that out, what that helps me think through is um, I can appreciate that some of the nervousness about the idea of solitude is it can feel very kind of esoteric and like, well, just go put your hands in a certain shape and sit in the ground and do this. And it's like, but where's that in the, like, we want to be Bible Christians. And so what you're framing is, no, no, this is, this is a practice of using scripture in experiencing who God has revealed himself to be for us. And, and there's also just a practical dynamic of like, some of us resonate with Psalm 23 in a different way than, or Psalm 120, 130 or something like that. Um, uh, or Sermon on the Mount, or certain images, and it's basically saying those things, let's just functionally take those and make those a central sort of shield in defending these times together with God. Yeah, and I would add, like, there are things that go outside the realm of Scripture in terms of practices that I think are really practical and helpful and take seriously the fact that God created us as embodied human beings. So, like, you'll read monastic tradition around, like, make sure you're seated, like, with your hips above your knees, so full range of breathing. That's actually a really healthy practice and not anti-Bible at all. Like, if you do it in a recliner, (laughs) good luck. Like, it's just, I'm sorry, like, my body's conditioned to, as soon as my feet are up, the whole system is powering now. Like my kids mock me ceaselessly for I can make it about ten minutes into a movie before. Like I'm just you like, don't like those those movie theaters where they automatically kick oh it's your the feet worst. Out. I'm like I paid like a thousand dollars to sit here and fall asleep in this really comfortable chair. But the point being that there are some things where it might seem like a little bit weird, but they're actually good practical strategies, sure, sure. and they they make sense of us as embodied human beings. Right which is part of God's, uh, God's good design. So I would say some people like intentionally sit in a spot that's not comfortable just for the simple reason of not falling asleep while they do it. Like I can, I can understand, like if I sit down to do that, like I'm going to fall asleep. So I need to make sure that, you know, maybe I'm sitting on the floor or something. I mean, whatever, like I'm not legalistic about any of that, but if your default strategy is like, I'm going to lay on the couch and do this, like 
I bet you're going to be asleep yeah. before too long. Well, and I think that that's so. kind of like when Jesus talks about when he, in Matthew 6 about teaching his disciples to pray. He says, you know, go to your prayer closet. And I was actually doing a little bit of some reading in this last week to try to understand like what was a prayer closet. And there's a lot of, it's kind of like a bit of a category of like anything from like the kitchen closet to like your space in the, you know, in the barn or something like that. It's like, it's not, I think Jesus himself is alluding to wherever you're able to find a place with the Lord himself that is comfortable for you to be able to do that and, and serves the purpose of being with God. Yep, absolutely. Um, how do we stay focused on growing in Christ's likeness through silence and solitude? And how do we um, know if we're making silence and solitude the main thing? That's a good question. Oh. <laughs> um, You're the yeah, expert. I think that uh, I, I would look at things that are consistent with the fruit of the Spirit. I guess that's my simple answer that, like, if you think about it in kind of concentric circles of as an individual, if you're practicing this on a pretty consistent basis, I think that you're going to see it showing up and there's going to just be an interior calm. I mean, just just picture what it would be like to see like the Dalai Lama like diving through a bar window. Like it's just so like doesn't seem to make sense. There's sort of an interior serenity to that, that uh, the regular practice of, of these sorts of disciplines does show up. So you think of love and joy and peace patience, kindness, faith, hope, love, like the New Testament categories for these things, I think you're going to be experiencing that on an individual level, and that's going to be observable. And as you back these kind of circles out, you think like, okay, in my home, this is going to spill over to other people, ideally, when I'm at work, church, like whatever, whatever those circles are for you, it doesn't stay contained to an individual. And I think that's where like the missional component is incredibly important, that it's not just an interior discipline. It's for the sake of others. So Jesus withdrawing to lonely places to pray is, you know, kind of communing with the Father and so that he can enter into his ministry in a more full, a more full way. Um, so, so I guess with that in view, if you start from a place of desire, it's this is because I want to be an interiorly calm person such that I can be a blessing to the people around me. It's not just about feeling good about myself. Yeah, and that's the thing I think I was, one of the questions we laid out, I've got another question along the lines, basically like what's the payoff of yeah. silence and solitude? Like, you know, how do we, um, how can we or should we expect to receive from God during times of silence and solitude? Um, or as a result of adopting this practice, which is similar to the idea of what's the payoff of this over a 10, 20 year period? Because we're not talking like go and do this for 30 minutes on a Sunday afternoon. Like we're talking about a lifestyle of this type of discipline. Yeah. And I think I would add to that too, because the question of like, what can we expect in these experiences? I thought was a, a really perceptive question. Just because, like, you, you, I guess I'm always looking for, like, real-world cash value. <laughs> like, if I'm going into this meeting and it could have been an email, like, <laughs> there better be food. Uh, that, that's all I have to say. Like, there's got to be some, some sort of practical. So I think that if you go into it with that sort of desire mindset, but also to be a blessing to other people, I think for myself, what I really want to be operating in Especially where, like, before COVID, we were starting to move in those spiritual gifts, like prophetic words and those sorts of things. Like, not full-blown prophetic words, but I want to raise my awareness of other people, and I want to raise my awareness of, like, what are the specific encouraging things I can say to them? And if I'm just always striving and, and frenetic like that, like, I'm, I'm just not going to be aware of other people. So I think that's another, like, what can I expect God to do in that? I think... I expect him to sort of alter me in interior ways, but also just make me more aware in yeah. terms of, you know, loving God and loving others well. And I think that to pull from something you were saying earlier, in the the payoff or what we should expect in the silence of solitude is we will we will be confronted with who we are, which is why we need those sort of you're saying that prayer of like, okay, then how do we kind of fend off? But I think there is like dealing honestly with who we are in the presence of the Lord is healthy, yeah. but the, the main caveat there is in the presence of the Lord who has promised himself for our good and joy, that is 
the desire. Not we don't want to just be alone with ourselves so we can kind of like Zen Buddhist our way out of a sense of self. We want the Lord Himself. And so there is an experience of the Lord that I think is in one way or another um, in front of us with the with the discipline. Um, the the swing side of this question uh, that I I appreciate we uh, I appreciate that we have a, a wide diversity of people in the church and so some people are like I would love like five minutes of solitude and yet we have others who um, aren't married or don't have families and so the question was how can we uh, I'm sorry the question here what when, we, uh, what would you say to someone who has an overabundance of silence or solitude in their life. Yeah, I found that to be such a helpful um, question just for the, the element of um, diversity. I think the way that I would answer that is, A, just being alone isn't the same thing as what I'm describing as like sort of the discipline of solitude. So like Memorial Day weekend, Cynthia and the kids are in Maine. I'm experiencing solitude, which is probably binge watching The Office while I felt the Lord calling me to make a pan of uh, Reese's peanut butter cup brownies. <laughs> now that I was alone, I would not describe that as necessarily a spiritual discipline. Uh, and, and the more I thought about it, I'm like, that was really unhealthy. Like, I probably should have called Jacob to say, like, I really should. This is really antisocial and weird. Um, so I, I, I just would have egged you on. <laughs> so <laughs> take a video. And not that that's what's being described. But so I would start by saying that is just such a gift and utilizing that in that season, like just blessings upon that. Yeah. Um, and I think if, if there was time to like sit and listen to the entire story, I would, I would make sure that there is the consideration of missional elements, not in any kind of a, you know, doing you more doing or striving, way, yeah. not at all. Like just to, to like where the question is, you know, two dimensional, like I would ask questions around that. But if that's a season of life, or if that's like the way that God has wired you and, and there's congruence there, like, boy, what a gift. And there's, yeah. that's wonderful. I would praise God for that. Yeah, my thoughts on that were, um, first of all, I think it's an amazing gift to be self-aware of that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to be a trite answer and then say something along the lines of, go babysit for the family or something like that. Like, Because I don't want the value of singleness in the church to be uh, free babysitting for the family families. That, that is a gift uh, that should be uh, stewarded and, and utilized. Similar to you, my thoughts went towards um, what does it look like then to use, to, to press into silence and solitude with the Lord and experience who He is um, and ask the question, is there ways that God could, could stir me in these times that would be a blessing to others? That's not to say you need to then go do stuff, but are there is there creative things that God's stirring you if you're a creative type person? Um, is there types of things that the Lord wants to stir you for in mission within the, your neighborhood or city that God could be fueling that you then need to think through and spend time with the Lord on? Not go do things, but to spend time with the Lord. So like, is there then, if you have a, a more prolonged space to do that, I guess my thoughts were, then how is the Lord going to utilize, how would, what would the Lord be inviting you in um, to use that as a, to bless others yeah, as a way. Yeah. And in a way that's congruent with who you are. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, are there, before we move on to, I, I want Peter to kind of speak to some of the practical uh, practice type stuff. Uh, I have not gotten any further texts. Any, any questions? Okay. I'm sure Ian, my youngest, has questions back there. Um, Peter, would you would you kind of lead us into that stuff that you had thought uh, thought? Through? Yeah, so we have uh, those two slides. Um, one is like this is just like tried and true for centuries in terms of like an imaginative reading of uh, Mark ten. It's just Bartimaeus, uh, and Jesus asked him the question like basically, "What can I do for you?" Which always like struck me as like the most transparently obvious question ever in the whole Bible. Uh, but Jesus asked it, so like, I'm not really allowed to say that. But the idea is that what is it that you most desire? So you enter into this imaginatively, and you're having a conversation with Jesus, and you answer the question, 
what I most want from you right now is what? And you just spend some time, like, imagining this conversation with Jesus and what would that look like. Um, and I always want to be somewhat careful in terms of, you know, blindness being healed here. I don't want to, you know, paint God into right, a you're corner. Not, you're not naming your, this is what I need from you, and then God gives it to you. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to just be very, very careful about that. Um, so maybe the second slide is a little bit more of a kind of a benign way to do that. What what do I desire? Like, what are the, the deep longings? And I think that if you allow yourself the time and the space to really think through that, like, Jesus, what do I want right now? Like, I can say for myself at the beginning of the summer, this was just really a rich time of reflection for me, and I needed to be outside of my normal space. Like, it's sort of like being at home, like a staycation. Like, I was looking at the 37 different projects that I'm avoiding, and uh, it's better just to be in the mountains somewhere. So that that was kind of what I needed to do it. And if you look at Matthew 6 alongside that, where your treasure is, your heart will be also kind of thing. Like, you will gravitate in the direction of your desire. I think that that is, like, non-negotiable. Like, it, you're going to find a way to do the things that you want to do, the things you really deeply desire to do. Um, so, so to ask God, like, what is the thing that I really sense that I need right now? And what I'm finding, you know, in terms of describing, you know, boundary setting, I'm finding a lot of resolve in maintaining those because I was sort of worried about reentry problems as like I have to establish these boundaries in different ways. There is just a ton of resolve on my part because it comes out of this place like this is who I desire to be. This is where I sense God at work inside me. And even across like sacred and secular like mediums, these were the themes that kind of resounded like almost accidentally. So I really sensed Jesus in, in that, which means there was a resolve to, to be able to do it. Um, versus like, well, you should be more quiet. Like, I know I should be, but I, I don't do well with shoulds and oughts. Like, I'm, I'm not going to be able to sustain that. I, I should eat well. <laughs> But, but I'm not going to. <laughs> and, and at this point, I don't even feel bad about it. Like, I used to express it as, like, yeah, I really should. Like, no, no I'm no. enjoying my life. And, well, what are you going to do? Because um, that's not really a top priority. But if it comes out of a place of desire, does that, I don't know if that makes sense or not. So I would invite you into these. Like, these are really good starting points. And if you had a spiritual director, like, this is kind of where they're going to start. Um, and then the silence and the solitude, maybe it's not, we want to be careful not to project, like this isn't the clear and present danger for everybody at this time. Yeah. Um, but as we were talking about these ideas, Cynthia and I were even talking about the solitude chapter, like before we came to church and, G and Jacob was addressing it. Like it was just a really interesting um, kind of convergence of things. Uh, that I, I, you know, I think that the Lord might be in that for, for a number of us. And if not, you just tuck it away as a tool in the toolbox. Like maybe it's not a clear and present issue right now, uh, but it's certainly an option that's open. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.